Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I am so excited to continue this pretty much all X-Men week here. Of course, we started out as an X-Men show. That's where the X and X's for Podcast comes from. But we have expanded to include so much coverage of the Marvel Universe. Now, as we've expanded our coverage, the world has sort of shifted around a little bit, and there has been one thing after another that that has complicated not just the comic industry, but clearly the entire world. And they are such important, real things to deal with. But they have also led to things like paper shortages and scheduling issues. And so it's so funny that we expanded our coverage to include all of these other things. And here we are just talking X-Men this week, which, of course, absolutely nobody here on X's for Podcast is ever going to complain about the opportunity to talk about Marvel's Most Merry Mutants, our favorite thing in the world to discuss. And today we have two of the most incredible X-Titles in recent memory to talk about. We're going to kick things off with a look at Marauders number one with a bold new creative team and an incredible new direction with an exciting cast, as well as turning our attention over to a double whammy of X-Force issues. Now that's an annual with a new creative team and the revamped creative team on the title's return in the pages of X-Force 27. Now, I love Marauders, and Marauders is such an exciting title when you're thinking about like the classic, I guess it's already classic, isn't it, Dugan era, and one of the things that was so exciting was when they said that Marauders was going to relaunch with maybe a bit more queer of a bend to it, it relaunched with an identity that was designed for its readership. I think Jerry Dugan stumbled onto something so beautiful and powerful and emotional with his Marauders run, and I don't think any of us saw it coming, and knowing that there was such an attachment from, you know, underserved communities that really attach to Marauders, seeing this infusion of queer attitude, especially it's from a very X-Factor kind of place, which was such a queer title, and we all miss it so much, and I'm just so excited that this book is around, because it really is something that the X-Men need. They need that sort of queer visibility that challenges the status quo, and I think the art here is so brave, going with a more manga-inspired attitude. Everything about this, number one, really feels like it's the destiny of X and it's here. And we hope you guys enjoy it just as much as we enjoyed our coverage of it. And if you guys like what you hear, don't forget you might like what you see. So give us a subscribe over on Twitter at X is for podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exes for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics mutants, magic, and mama dries week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm TK, and you can find me failing to solve a Mysterium puzzle box that says for ages 5 to 10 on it on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And I'm Steven, you can find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star Groups. I'm Kyle. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-82. 
updates too. Hey everyone, I'm Jake. You can find me over on Twitter at Omega Sentinel, OH Mega Sentinel. And we hope you survive the experience, unlike Krakoa's organs, which are being actively vivisected by Cassandra Nova. What's that about? Yeah, one of a number of disturbing things about Cassandra Nova that we learned in Marauders number one. She's taken an extra interest in medicine and anatomy, so I, I don't think we can fault her for that. Listen, moms love a child becoming a doctor. <laughs> they really do, though. But her mother is dead, so she's just a horrible. R.I.P. Sharon. R.I.P. Yeah, but how does that not break the third law of Krakoa? Uh, a very fair question. I think it's because she made it so Krakoa couldn't feel it, so she's doing the Lord's work. Well, there's that. They also, <laughs> she's clearly in a unique, like, no place prison y type thing where maybe this was part of the deal. Guys, we are talking about Marauders number one. <laughs> Written by Steve Orlando, art by Eleonora Carlini, color art by Matt Milla, letters and production by VCs Ariana Marr, and design by Tom Muller, and a gorgeous cover by Kyle Wu. Quite a trip of an issue to start out with for this new run. Oh yes, most certainly. This issue had us on Earth, it had us in space, it had us going you know, back to the most ancient lore of mutants and is propelling us into the future. Brain broken. <laughs> <laughs> I can honestly say I wasn't expecting a space slash Shi'ar storyline. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that at all either. I'm totally here for it. I also wasn't expecting the reveal at the end. I'm not sure if I'm here for that, though. Well, you know, we started off with a very kind of standard Marauders MO situation in which they are in Wyoming of all places. There is a mutant situation where humans are in danger and also kind of the aggressors. And it's a both political and action conflict that they've got to figure out how to navigate, which is what we've come to expect that the Marauders are doing. They're out in the world taking care of mutant problems and getting mutants back to Krakoa and keeping mutants safe. So it starts on a very like, hey, these are the Marauders that you know and recognize and this is their mission, even if it's a slightly different crew, which we know from the annual that had come out written by Steve Orlando for this, which I thought was a really good way to ground everything and remind us, like, these are the Marauders. This is what we think of them. But then we take a hard right and Kitty goes to deal with the Mysterium puzzle box that she found in the Marauders annual. And that's where we start to get horror, psychedelic, comedy. I don't know. Man, it was a lot going on in this scene. I just love the way we came across Cassandra Nova. Like, she's some, like, horrific child chopping up small animals. This visual of her pulling these organs out of Krakoa and just just slicing them like it's something she needs to do to relieve tension or something. I think she says specifically it gives her a feeling she's generally an emotionless kind of creature. She likes the guilt that it gives her, which I think really right off gives you a sense of like, this is a character who is not going to stay on the side of angels. Or if she does, her actions are going to take her pretty far out outside what we think are the actions of a good guy or a good person, a good Momodrai. A good Momodrai. I think I misunderstood what a Momodrai was up until this issue or did he semi retcon what it was? No, this was pretty much a clarification. Um, I, a lot of people have written Momodrais differently or kind of also misunderstood and so when they were writing stories with Momodrais in them went a little off the rails. This I think is a pretty clear distillation of the original yeah, intent. I, I 
I actually think that's very fair. I thought that this was extremely clear. I always thought it was that she was his twin, but she lost her body because of the immense psychic power that she unleashed in the womb. And then, you know, of course, Xavier cannibalized the rest of her body. Then she had to create a body out of the muck and stuff out of the sewage. The way Morrison set it up was that every person, every being that is born has to fight its shadow self on the way out into life. And because Xavier had such a powerful psychic mind, his shadow self, his mummadry was so powerful that it created its own body full with the same psychic powers that Xavier had. So when they fought, they were having this, this primal battle fighting in the womb. And he did away with her, but because she held on to that immense, you know, genetic potential of the Xavier's, she survived. And she, like, like you said, she clung to the side of a sewer and grew a body over time. There was this great line, I think, in New X-Men where Jean says something to the effect of, I'm not sure she even recognizes anything else except her and Xavier and the conflict that they have. Everything else in her existence is just window dressing to that conflict. She's the primordial shadow villain of the soul, given form and brought into the world, which is one of the things that makes her so terrifying. But I will say it's one of the things I do appreciate about this issue is that they on page had, well, on a data page, but still had this dialogue that's not dissimilar from the one that we are having in which they ask themselves, is this person a mutant? How do we consider, and Sinister gets brought into it, Sinister's own genetic heritage that he stole gets brought into it. These are Mm -hmm. important questions when we talk about what makes a Krakoan citizen, what makes a mutant, who should be allowed. And it's both in canon, something that needs to be discussed and something among fans that's going to be discussed because we remember a time when Cassandra Nova was saying, I am not a mutant. I'm here to kill all mutants. I hate all mutants. And yet that same data page also gives us a good bit of setup for an impending conflict between Minister and John Proudstar. You know, we were reminded that the X gene that Sinister took to, you know, claim his beaten identity was Proudstar's. And uh, I am ready to see that fight, to be completely honest. I think that'll be a knockdown drag out. I feel like this has been kind of hanging over all of our heads for a long time. And I I just want to see like Sinister actually go to blows because even though he's capable of, you know, physical altercation, he's very much like Emma who chooses not to. He chooses a more cerebral way of dealing with his issues. There is this like one line and I'm going to feel so bad if we like never ever mention Fever Pitch after he said didn't think anyone would remember, didn't think they cared. And like I was so excited when I saw the skeleton that they were saving because I was like, oh my god, Fever Pitch! I 100% thought that that was Holocaust and I was like, oh okay, we're doing that then. I was very happy when Energy Skeleton got named as Fever Pitch because I was like, oh good, we don't have to have another complicated conversation about mutant amnesty. Oh wait, we're having that conversation about Cassandra Nova five pages later. Art was so beautiful with the skeleton, like, oh my gosh. I think that this art style is perfectly suited for Cassandra Nova. Indeed. She just looks super creepy, but at the same time, she fits in with the team, and it's weird. I did notice a couple of continuity issues between panels. It's not big issues. It's mostly just Bishop's little X logo changing or disappearing and going from a, a standard X to an X-Factor X, and it was it was a little weird. 
it did feel like there were some uh as you said continuity issues somnus's face i felt changed a couple of times but i mean that wasn't anything too too upsetting i think it has a very manga style yes yes i was thinking that this morning i was like oh this feels very manga like it's a little manga it's also a little bit chibi Mm -hmm. for somebody like cassandra nova who is terrifying Mm -hmm. it really works it's like this is for you this is to humanize you physically while stuff goes on that is so creepy and scary and weird that when we look at it it disturbs us for like a psylocke for a daken i feel like it maybe makes them a little too cute a little too like gasp with big eyes in moments that aren't white supposed to have that feeling to them yeah i agree i do really like that kate's hair definitely comes off as curly though Mm -hmm. i really like the way that they draw softness in this I think he is just so adorable. I mean, I think he's a great example, too, because we don't know anything about him. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that we do know is that his powers are not super fighty. He's not like a big fight guy. So for him to also be kind of cute and like be more expressive, it works perfectly fine. And this is a great artist to match with that character. Aurora is like a really good in between Mm -hmm. because she's a very active character, but nothing about her is very aggressive or like going to cut you up or brawl. Aurora as characterized since Krakow so she fits well with the art as well. One of the things that I've loved about the Krakoan agent general is that it feels like so many of these characters have taken a huge developmental step forward. And in X Factor, Aurora really integrated a lot of pieces of herself that she seemed to struggle with and found a, a degree of peace and control and understanding with herself. She's taking more agency in her life than I think I've seen on the page with her stories before. I think it's safe to say that as long as she's in Marauders, we're going to see a much more nuanced portrayal of her. One day, five, ten years down the line, you might have to accept seeing somebody who's like, let's take Aurora back to her roots. So yeah, for now, I think she's in a safe space, but I think she fits really well with this style of art. I think Psylocke and Bishop are two that really stick out to me as not really fitting, and especially because they tend to carry a bunch of the big action scenes in this. You see it especially with them. It's not bad, just for For me, it doesn't quite fit the characters. And then in the action scene, it's a bit too much chaos referencing two characters that are kind of all about strategy and finesse. Tempo looks great in this. She does. And I think for Team Gearhead, they're really eating in this issue. Yeah, absolutely. I'm struck by what a queer team this is. And that makes me very happy between Tempo and Somnus and Daken and, okay, I'm going to say it, Kate. It's nice to see a lot of queer folks on a team again. I loved that that was an element element of X Factor and I love that that's an element here. I also really just love seeing Somnus like here he is. It's so nice to see him doing stuff. <laughs> it's nice to see him exploring his reality, exploring his powers. That moment where Cassandra Nova says to him, you know, you're actually the only one who could have kept me out of your mind. That's really interesting. I was a little confused by one panel where it looks like he is flying to attack her or she's affecting him. It just wasn't super clear. Psylocke is also a very powerful psychic so it says something to the effect that his abilities he's only really beginning to master his abilities and that he has some vast potential he can pull people in to the astral plane but like more specifically like the dreamscape aspect of it i think this is going to be something that will develop in the pages of this book and then when future writers get their hands on somnus it could Mm -hmm. change a little bit i i was just curious because it it sounded very like almost 
almost Shadow King to me, and I kind of love that. And I think that's like literally a perfect matchup with Cassandra Nova. The play of dreams in terms of telepathy and the astral plane and all that is very as a writer needs and as a writer chooses to write. Absolutely. So there's nothing said here that limits things so much that you would be like, it's not the astral plane. It's actually just dreams. It's literally just a person's dreams and has nothing to do with like a wider telepathic sphere. I don't think it will end up being that. I think he will end up having a much more like broad telepathic spectrum of powers that functions best through dreams or maybe exclusively through dreams, but like how he gets into dreams will be expanded. It's kind of nice that they have like a spin on it, you know, like usually a lot of powers are described when it comes to mutants so clinically with like kinetic or path, you know what I mean? It's kind of nice to see a more like almost mystical aspect taken, like that's how he views it, you know? Even his costume is on a like a more mystical looking spectrum. I think that's a great observation too, and especially as we kind of see the lines blurred between mutant ability and magic ability, that would be a really great thing to explore. What is the line between, you know, anyromancy as a magical ability and anyropathy, I guess, as like a a psychic ability? I'll be interested to see what kinds of cool circuits Somnus can form with other psychics or other other mutants. Absolutely, for sure. I love that they've managed to replace Fabian Cortez yet again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, and they commented on that, which was brilliant. (laughs) How did that work exactly? Tempo is presumably putting a bubble around the ship and Aurora is speeding the ship through space. Interesting, okay. Yeah, that's my understanding of it as well. Wasn't sure how Aurora was incorporated in that. I'm fine with it. I thought it was really, really cool. I was excited to see it. I love that they were holding hands and eating fruits together. It was so adorable. Fruits grown by Gregor Smerdyakov, who we haven't seen since, I think, just after M-Day. He's a tree mutant. It's one of the things I love about Queer Writer on an X-Book is you know that they have all of those deep pulls and like mm-hmm. things that they remember from when they were a kid and loved reading the X-Men that they're like, oh, I can throw this in here now and it's actually going to make perfect sense and it will remind everybody that like this is a huge culture with a lot of people and a lot of different facets and there's always another circuit that you didn't think about. That's one of the big promises of the Krakoan age that when I talk about it, a lot of times I'm talking about like the in-world promise of like a better future for your mutants and a place to live together but also the promise of the writer's room and the promise of who's going to show up and who they're going to put on books and what they're going to remind fans is important to them as writers and to us as readers that have had a similar experience of taking this thing on over many years. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean like Fever Pitch literally says I didn't think anyone would remember. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. I thought that was such a like wink wink nudge nudge like who remembers Fever Pitch? Well, C. Orlando does. Yeah, exactly. and obviously a bunch of us in this room did too. So you have that moment where you're like, ah, I remember that exact same thing. Mm-hmm. I know. I was so I was so excited to see him. Now if only somebody can give Vertigo her ex gene. This issue had a bunch of of deep cuts to it. You had Smerdyakov, you had Fever Pitch, you had Eric the frickin' Red. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean we, we can jump into that now. <laughs> I actually don't really think Eric the Red was that deep a cut. It happened. It was how the book ended. As soon as 
as we got to the Shi'ar Empire and we introduced Delphos the Red, for me, immediately, I was like, okay, Eric the Red's going to show up at some point. That was the exact reaction I had to. Yeah, it could be a really great story. I don't care about Eric the Red at all. The complications of Shi'ar space and the Shi'ar Empire can be a really fun thing to explore in a book that is more focused on exclusively that. The Marauders, for me, like, even if they go to Shi'ar space and have a mission there, I kind of want to get them back near Krakoa or at least on Earth or at least between Earth and Arako doing stuff with all those people because these are characters that I like seeing interacting in that way. So, you know, this is cool. I just don't know if there will be quite enough time or space to explore it in a way that makes me really excited. <laughs> well, with yeah. tempo, we've got all the time we need. <laughs> yeah. They can churn out 16 tempo books and, you know, yeah, sure. I haven't always loved some of the recent choices they made, like to have an ancient phoenix from like, you know, however tens of thousands of years ago, because it didn't make sense to me how you could have mutants before Selene and Apocalypse, who were always espousing themselves as the oldest mutants. So now we've got a storyline that says there was a generation of mutants before. They're off in Shi'ar space for some reason, where the Phoenix comes from. You know, I see some real potential to loop all of that back around and make it a tighter, more consistent and cohesive narrative, at least like in the world of the text itself. I want the first Phoenix to be of that first generation of mutants. I want that first generation of mutants to have gone off into Shi'ar space to create the myth of the Phoenix there that came back to Earth that, you know, created all the Phoenix stories we know and love. Like, I see so much potential. I don't necessarily believe they're going to go there with it, but like, that's that's what my fingers are crossed on for this story. I do know that it is coming and it should be approached and I, I could only hope for it to be approached with A, respect and B, clarity. So space stuff, just it's wonky for me. More wonky than timey-wimey stuff. So, so I'm, <laughs> I'm very apprehensive about them going into space in the first place. I'm trying really hard <laughs> to not lose my steam with this because I love the Marauders in general and, and in concept so damn much. So I've been just starting to get into the cosmic side of Marvel recently. So when Guardians of the Galaxy ended, I was kind of like, oh, what's where? where's my cosmic stuff going to be coming from? So having Marauders going into space, that makes me happy. I'm excited to see what happens. To me, Eric the Red feels like a joke, but... <laughs> Aaron warranted. <laughs> yes. They could always retcon him again, so maybe he'll be better this time. I love the Shi'ar stuff, and we do have the gate on Chandelar. It makes sense for them to go back to Shi'ar and try to save these mutants that nobody's known about. I'm excited to see what happens. I mean, the fact of the matter is the story has tied into space adventures since Krakoa started. We had the new mutants immediately going into Shi'ar space. We most recently had that great secret X-Men story that Stephen, I know you were on me with. So yeah, we did secret X-Men where we see something not dissimilar from this and really, I mean, kind of a precursor to this because again, in this and in S.W.O.R.D., we've seen Xandra making her presence known, essentially saying that the Shi'ar are allies to mutants. We've had some questions about what's going on with Mentor. So there is a degree to which this has been pulled together through multiple books and could be resolved not just in Marauders, but through the pages of multiple books. The idea then to pull in the history of mutants as well and to tie, you know, the past, present, and kind of future, you know, deep space at least, together. It's another really synergistic storytelling on the part of the 
X writer's room that I think is going to contribute to some really fascinating expansion of the understanding of mutant identity and mutant culture. At least since the 90s, there has been this idea that in a potential far future, mutants will will go essentially create Planet X, will right. go like have a mutant planet. That's where if you guys read the 90s Guardians of the Galaxy series, that's where the Phoenix of the 30th century came from. So there is kind of this sense, and maybe it's just, it's tied along with that sense of like, in order to survive as a species, you have to be a multi-planetary species. It does always seem like there is a, a trajectory for mutant kind to get off the Earth and to get out into space at some point. And the ties with the Shi'ar are so strong, just from the early Dark Phoenix stories and the relationship between Charles Xavier and Lalandra that has now produced Xandra, what came up in Grant Morrison's new X-Men with Cassandra Nova. The idea that this is always now going to be a part of mutant life. The Shi'ar will always be sort of best allied to mutants off of Earth. And now pulling in history and saying there's actually a connection to mutants going back thousands, millions of years earlier than this, that these two species, peoples are tied together. I think it makes a lot of sense and opens up a lot of storytelling possibilities. Well, and they're already kind of tied. I mean, like you've had two mutants sitting on the throne of Chandelar. You had right. you had Vulcan and you have Xandra. Yep. I mean, she's, she's technically a mutant, right? She's oh yeah, she is absolutely a mutant. I love this characterization of Xandra as the sort of like unsure leader who is trying to secure her reign, take the good advice that's around her, and also like survive the many assassination attempts against her. I feel like it's, there's been a semi-inconsistency with her, but that just may be some weird disconnect for me. I don't think it's a disconnect. I can't tell if it's very well thought out amongst multiple people that Xandra doesn't know quite who she is yet. She's not fully formed. She's still young and innocent and needs to keep having experiences and learning before she can sort of coalesce into an adult person that can lead without so much handling. Or if that's just what it looks like because she is getting little bits of contribution from multiple writers, none of whom have huge authority over exactly who she is. So it just comes off as a kind of innocence and ignorance. Yeah. And so I think this could be the book because we just don't know how long they're going to be there and how much she's going to be in it. But at some point, somebody could get a hold of her for a series of issues in which they're very much able to establish who are you? Like, are you actually this blind to what's going on some of the time? Are you really well-intentioned or have you just not sort of been battle-hardened yet? Ooh, I like that. Yeah, battle-hardened. That was really mm-hmm. good. I mean, that's what happens to every other Shi'ar yeah. emperor. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely <laughs> right. I mean, here's the thing, though. Like, at what point can we stop using that as an excuse when she's had a, multiple assassination attempts? Well, I think the difference between an assassination attempt where it's a very personal thing and you think to yourself, how can I take care of myself versus here's a threat that could destroy the empire. That's millions, billions of people that are relying on me to make the right decision. And in order to make the right decision, I might have to kill millions or billions of other people to save my people. That is my job. Mm, Nice. Yeah, very true. Okay, I accept. So this is all, I mean, storytelling possibility. I don't know that we're going to get that in this book. And I don't know when we will be able to sort of have an understanding of Xandra as a character. I mean, the biggest thing for me is she has spent zero time with her father. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, to that's me, she can't... for the best. I'm on the like <laughs> more, than char- 
character. Like, if she were my friend, I'd be like, your dad is a dick. Stay away from him. As a reader, I'm like, I before I can really feel like this is a fully formed character, even if they don't spend time together, reckoning with the fact that they don't spend time together yeah. is a thing that kind of has to happen for me. And I think is worthy of storytelling. I get the sense that she's mostly been a passive actor, you know, placed on the throne, protected by her super guardians. Like, she doesn't defend herself when these assassination attempts come. It's other people who defend her. She's not Deathbird. She's not Lalandra. She's not Vulcan. She's not Gladiator. She doesn't have a power set that, you know, really, I mean, she, what does she turn into a glowy sphere? That's her power. She's still young. She's still a child. She's still figuring things out and she can't defend herself yet. And I like the idea of a Shi'ar Regency. I always like the juxtaposition of, you know, you've got innocence sitting on the bloodiest throne in the universe. What do you do with that? I thought she was actually a telepath. Jake, you're confusing me. Are <laughs> <laughs> she... all Shi'ar like a little bit telepathic at least? She likely is a strong telepath because her father is Charles Xavier. We yeah. have not seen a ton of examples of telepathy from her period and we definitely haven't seen any where she is attacked and says like, oh, I'm going to stop this because I'm a super powerful telepath. So we, again, it's just that lack of definition about her abilities. Okay, only because I remember this was like a point of contention for me in Secret X-Men. Yeah, yeah, I do, <laughs> I I do believe she her. has telepathic ability and yeah, there is a sense that like all she are when the story calls for it are like a little bit telepathic. I, you know, I also might be getting that from the animated series because yeah. that was definitely a thing in the animated series that all Shi'ar were a little bit telepathic. It was, you're right about that. I'm wondering whether or not it's she's telepathic in the same way that Chamber is where she has psychic potential but like really she's just using it to talk to minds and doesn't really have any like defensive or offensive capabilities with it. Again my guess is none of this has been written in stone. It's going to be somebody's job to come in and say this is her powers. Yeah absolutely. I get thrown off every time we discuss her because I just again I think this is part of the inconsistency where she you know in Secret X-Men she was written as you know erasing people's minds and with a fairly uh, skilled hand at it too because of how flawlessly she did it against Xavier's students. A lot of people forget because it's not, again, it's just, it's not consistent. It's not consistent. So here's hoping we're going to get some of that consistency in a book where she will be more predominantly, prominently featured. So Stephen, I got to ask, how did you feel about Mentor coming back? Um... <laughs> this answer any questions for you? Sure. <laughs> You know what? I let let's let's get through a couple of issues. Yeah. And I will have more of an answer for you. Yeah, that's that because is what I, I I'm going to be honest with you. I was so thrown by this being a space story that I don't want to say shut down, but like I I was just trying to roll with it and get through it. Everything it's gonna else be a happening. rough ride for you, Steve. What is worth It's going to be such a rough ride. I hope that that doesn't, you know, disqualify me from from being able to, have, <laughs> to talk about it but i just ooh, i never really enjoyed shiar storylines and i will say this i love steve orlando as a writer very very much so i do have high hopes for it i just space is very hard for me to swallow given that marauders is like a mutant pirate story i suspect that we're gonna get some space pirate stories out of this possibly even to team up with the star jammers if we're lucky 
Yes. Um, okay. That's, you know what? That is very true. And I do have it written here that mutant specific Guardians of the Galaxy, which I guess I'm fine with. I hope that this is handled in a way that it is very clear and concise. And I understand what is happening because so much of the time I never have a damn clue what's going on with the Shi'ar. Stephen, for what it's worth, I kind of felt similarly when the new mutants first went into space way early on in the new mutants run. It was just like, oh, yeah. I actually like space stuff more than it sounds like you do, but I just didn't want it then. I was like, I want to see these characters hanging out on Krakoa and like getting to know the new land and yeah. figuring out their place in it. I do not want to see them in space. No, thank you. I ended yeah. up enjoying that story enough. It wasn't what I wanted, but it, I thought it was a really good story. I'm so glad you said that. I weirdly did not want it. And then that was the story I ended up enjoying the most out of the two stories that were going on. Yeah, the thing that really saved it for me was that they went home and that there were a bunch of new mutant stories that were not in Shi'ar space. Mm -hmm. So yes, I'm hoping we can uh, get absolutely. that for Marauders. I, and I don't count Arako as a space book because they're literally planet-based. They're planetarily mm -hmm. based. I would love to see them maybe do stuff there, even though there might not be much for them to do there, technically. I think we could definitely see them having an adventure on Arako. Yes. I think one of the reasons I've never really jived with space stories, and like I gotta say, like I, as much as I love the writer, Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire was one of my least favorite X stories ever. And I think one of the reasons space typically doesn't vibe with me is because it really takes us away from the exploration of the mutant metaphor as a sort of a marginalization metaphor. You know, they're not on Earth. They're not protecting their people in the same way. Like this book opens with the kind of work that I love seeing mutants do, protecting each other, building the nation. But when they go into space, they're kind of removed from all of that, that human mutant political drama that has always really pulled me in and always made me interested as a member of a marginal community seeing those stories told it doesn't feel like we're going to get that in this story necessarily. It feels like this is going to be some kind of complex prison break or something, but they could still surprise us. I think that is actually a huge issue that I have with it. I really love mutant storylines with them helping each other. Part of my issue stems from this weird claustrophobia. Uh, and I always get so scared because some of these characters can't really let loose in the way they normally would because it's like certain death <laughs> should they leave the mm -hmm. ship. That's pretty much at the heart of exactly why I think I lose a lot of interest when it comes to the mutants specifically leaving Earth or leaving, sorry, leaving their home planet. Well, I mean, these days, I don't think they really have to worry about that whole dying if they <laughs> leave the ship. They can just <laughs> get back in queue. <laughs> is absolutely true it's just they've tried to tell us you know like even though they come back even though they get resurrected you know like they still feel those deaths you know like yeah. right there there have to be stakes when it comes to these things absolutely. and you know having an aversion to death is still is still a reasonable stake um and having some x-men who are like i don't want to go through resurrection i don't want to die is a reasonable stake yeah absolutely and yeah being off planet and on an adventure is probably the sort of height of scariness of that because i think when they're that far away they're also removed from backup right well i like to think there's a cerebro cradle hanging out on chandelier at least okay well that would be good but i Either way, death is best avoided, and these guys are going into some perilous situations, so we are, I think, each waiting with bated breath to see what happens next. Am I right? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
I really love the aesthetic of Delphos the Red's reveal because it reminds me of like a Team Rocket reveal where she's like, she like bursts a smoke bomb and suddenly she's in this new costume and she's like, here I am, Delphos the Red. I chuckled a lot when I saw that, even though I think it was supposed to be a moment of high trauma. I was just like, ah, smoke bomb. Okay, smoke bomb costume reveal. I love it. (laughs) Staring at that panel, I can now fully hear the like literal music starting. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. For trouble. <laughs> Somnus's face smushed against the glass when he's so like cute. so excited. It was the most adorable <laughs> thing. I I genuinely am so excited to have him be a part of the team. And I love that they described him as the heart. So like, you know, if he was a Cap Planet character, now we know what ring he would have. Mm. Mm-hmm. Go Planet. I did like that. I maybe thought it was a little on the nose, but I think it's really cute. I love that Steve Orlando created a character that he now gets to bring into a book and make a main team X person. And I'm excited to see where he goes i thought it was really smart to have cassandra nova make that comment that really elevates him a little bit and makes him more than just like a cute little dreamscape boy so (laughs) he's gonna be a fun it was actually really cute when you see cassandra nova and the whole team reacting to her on the ship and then you Mm -hmm. have somnus just staring and then in the next panel everyone is in the exact same position with the same expression and he goes should i know who this is it's just like (laughs) it was just so cute and it was like one of those little beats that really like it hit perfectly for me yeah and i mean it's that's going to be true for a lot of readers too like there are a lot of people that did not pick up x-men until way after morrison or maybe even starting with house of x and powers of 10 so they don't know who cassandra nova is this is a great entry character for them and that that's a moment that they're all going to have too they probably were watching the organ removal moment being like i don't know who this weird lady i don't care Uh, (laughs) so you know everything's answered we're off to a good start for sure from an editor perspective this book does a great job catching us up on cassandra nova Mm -hmm. i loved that we saw gene and that we saw them interact and they discussed her compassion because i think sometimes it's really missed that compassion can lead you to do bad things Mm. Mm -hmm. and that was so clear here because you know she you know they're scared that she hasn't changed but she has you know gene did what she did gene thought she did the right thing and you know what in a lot of ways i think she did to be quite honest with you but it may not have been for the best yeah i really like that call out to the previous x-men red gene's horror at realizing that cassandra really hasn't changed at all even with the added compassion it's kind of like a gut punch that she she thought she was doing something to make things better and it didn't actually have any kind of positive effect and also I was really happy to see her in that outfit again. I really oh, love God, that, that outfit. Out- the outfit is perfect. I actually love the X-Men red outfit. Mm-hmm. So I was very pleased to see it again. I like to think that every time Jean's wearing a different costume, it's a different Jean. Like they just keep making different clone bodies of her. Um, but that's that's just a pet theory. <laughs> we try and do the right thing for the right reasons. And sometimes it just, it completely bombs. Using Cassandra Nova this way, saying like, oh, well, I won't hurt mutants is compelling. And I'm really excited to see see where it goes because she's clearly still horrific she's you know harvesting organs from Krokoa for some reason but she wouldn't harm a mutant fly so let's see how far that extends let's see pretty crazy combo of Jean and Charles taking big swings with this woman hoping they can make something out of her and possibly (laughs) leading to a lot of destruction it would be very interesting to see how it all comes together I also think Jean using her various costumes as sort of statements on what's going on with her what her Mm -hmm. intentions are 
you know, all the way going back to when they put on the X Factor looks to go into space. Mm -hmm. Jean serving fashion as part of her mutant agenda is what we should all be here for. Hey everybody, Nico here again, and I love that X-Force took a chance with putting a new writer on an annual and testing out this story. The art was so exciting, the plot was so tight, and then to get an issue of Ben Percy and now Robert Gill, who is the new penciler on the title, it was really exciting to see X-Force come back in such full swing. Now, admittedly, a number of us perhaps wish that the stories were maybe a little bit further apart, it would make life a little bit easier, but... At the end of the day, I do think that this was such an exciting chance to take a look at X-Force back in full swing after the events of X-Lives and X-Deaths, and with a renewed purpose, with these mutants moving toward an inevitable conclusion with a number of these stories, like Beasts Rise to Darkness, and now whatever the fuck is going on with Omega Red, I couldn't be more excited than to continue the coverage of this book. And as always, guys, we love bringing you coverage three times a week, every week. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays with new episodes every Every time. As always, you can find the show over on X's for Podcast on Twitter, and you can find me at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N. And you guys can find me in the upcoming Young Men in Love anthology. I'm so proud to be a part of this book featuring stories of queer romance, featuring male characters, and it's got incredible talent like Cena Grace, Anthony Oliveira, Terry Bloss, Joe Glass, and more. So definitely order it through Diamond or your local comic shop. It's going to be amazing when it comes out in June for Pride Month. And until next time, guys, keep those mutant lights lit those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, it's a whole lot of fun loving X-Men right now with the destinies of X in full swing, and we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome back to a very special double X-Force coverage segment of X's for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N snicked. And I'm Jonah. You can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. I'm Josh Wheel. You can find me on Twitter at AsleepAtTheWheel, W-E-I-L, and AsleepAtTheWheel.com. And from now until November 8th, as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate here in Florida, you can find me across social media at Wheel, the number four, U.S. Senate, and at JoshWheel.org. And we are here to talk about two X-Force, twice, at once, at the same time, and back again. We're going to be talking about the most, like, I just couldn't believe it when I saw in the previews listing that X-Force Annual and X-Force 27 were coming out the same day. It's like, uh, fine. But X-Force Annual was brought to us by Nadia Shamas as our writer, Rafael Pimentel, as our artist, Carlos Lopez on color art, VCs Joe Carmagna on lettering, and a really amazing cover by Torin Clark. The color is just so vibrant. We're also going to be taking a look at the somewhat revamped creative team for X-Force with X-Force number 27, featuring Benjamin Percy on writing, Robert Gill on art, Guru FX on colors. Man, Guru has been working for ever. VC's Joe Caramagna still lettering this bad boy. And then we've got Tom Muller and Jay Bowen working together on this very interesting new take on design that we're seeing all over the X-Books. And lastly, Joshua Kassara and Dean White, our previous creative team, providing covers like this is some sort of Lionel Francis you skipping out on X-Men deal. Okay, so many credits. So how did everybody feel jumping into a 
two X-Force week. Like, I couldn't believe that was real. Is this something they've ever done before? Will they release basically a precursor issue and then immediately in the same week release an issue that's an immediate follow-up to said issue? Yeah, when they're dumping stuff. Yeah, this is like shipping, let's get everything out before it's too late and it doesn't fit canon anymore. Yeah, this was supposed to come out a month ago, then it was supposed to come out last week, and then literally they had no choice but to put them at the same time because one preceded the other. Okay, that makes sense. And, you know, with everything going on, you have to do what you have to do. It's just weird because it's not something I've ever done in covering these comics for however long I've been doing this. In a weird way, I actually kind of liked it because there are times where you're reading these X stories and because there are so many different titles and so many different storytellers who are telling these ideas and these narratives, a lot of it tends to feel lost because there's so many different things going on across the fucking space that we it feels like what are we supposed to be worrying about in this moment because there's so many threats going on to so many different teams i don't know where my focus should lie but having these two x-force books back to back i was kind of like okay i understand this immediate threat because my narrative and my focus was only on this singular title yeah i think getting them at the same time is a disservice because there's a number of different things you can do with an annual the most common and historical thing that we get annuals for are filler on the those fifth shipping weeks. So, you know, every couple of months when you have a fifth Wednesday that having extra titles to go out that doesn't mess up the rest of your shipping title and it can be a one-off, it can be, you know, a teaser into something else, a grand finale, like it could be part of a thematically themed where all the annuals over the course of a year. It could be a spider title that starts quarterly and then gets monthly. Yeah. We've seen lots of different ways of them using the annuals. This one seemed like it would have been a nice very much like the marauders annual which is to say that you know we've got these couple months of kind of low shipping dead time great opportunity to and this is another thing annuals get used for a lot testing out new writers right testing out a new writer give them an opportunity to tell a one-off remind people of you know or keep orcas on the forefront lingering for future possibilities stuff like that pairing it at the exact same time as percy's opening to i don't know if we want to call this season two or whatever of x-force i don't think they benefited each other in any way i agree because i'm going to say i thought the annual was a gem i thought the annual really shone as something with kind of a this felt like an old issue of x-men unlimited that's what this felt like to me this felt like a good time a bunch of characters several stories intersecting i really liked this annual and it's going to get inevitably like shipping omnommed by X-Force 27, you know, just because the numbered issues do tend to get more significant attention than a a one-off or a special. And I do love that the new Comixology update slotted the annual in between 26 and 27 for me in my catalog. But then I am concerned that if you don't know to look for it, you might not realize it's there. Yeah. So for me, reading these back to back in the same morning, and first thing, I totally forgot X-Force Annual was not written by Ben Percy, right? And so, you know, I'm kind of getting, sitting down, gearing up. I open it up. I get a couple pages in and I'm like, oh, this is not Ben Percy. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, Percy's voice is inimitable, but the voices on these characters were not unique. The voices on these 
characters felt like a singular voice over and over again, which I'm going to assume since I can't remember reading or seeing anything from Shamas before is essentially their voice. The Domino, the Quentin Choir, the Wolverine, it took me out of it. I love the plotting. I loved what they brought to the table in terms of the storytelling. I just thought that their character voices were incredibly weak and undifferentiated. But I thought this was incredibly refreshing. I would love to see the book kind of become more playful like this in some ways. In terms of the B story, which gave us, you know, our boss bitch Queen Emma confronting Beast, which was very, very welcome. And I was very glad to have them kind of in there. I thought she had a good read in terms of where those characters were, but I think it lessened what we were getting. Having it on the same day as X-Force 27, it essentially detracted from X-Force 27 because there was a lot of, like, that should have been something as like a prepper. So that way a month later when we got X-Force 27, we were ready for that. Instead, it made some of those quiet council scenes and the beast scenes feel and Sage feel redundant, like hammering the same notes twice in a row, as opposed to kind of reminding or picking up where we left off. Oddly, I think I have the same notes as you, Josh, but in the opposite order. I think 27 took away from the annual for me, because when I look at the annual, I don't know if I particularly cared about the mission that the X4 team went on, because it oddly didn't feel dire to me. I don't know what it is about that situation, but I didn't feel like anybody was in danger, and I didn't feel like there was a chance that they were actually going to lose the information. What I did really love about the annual was Hank emphasis on the Koi, McCoy, acting in this way, where I thought this perspective of Beast was a little more, like you said, fresh and a little more nuanced in a way that I can resonate more with, that seeing him act in this way felt more like a natural progression of where I would see the character, as opposed to where we see him in 27, where I feel like he just kind of regressed to angry baby mode, like with him slamming his head on the table. Yes, he had a temper tantrum in 27. He like was like, no, I my way, cruel, mean people. And they're like, what are you talking about, Beast? You are insane. It's wild that when we talk about one of these had like a new test drive writer and the other has the writer that's been controlling the character for three years to say that the Beast line of no, 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 no was Ben Percy who's been controlling the character for three years. Like, it's... <laughs> it's something and that's the thing like so when you said that you felt like maybe the dialogue was the maybe weaker part i looked into nadia shamas previous to this it does not seem as though she's had a lot of direct on panel comic experience and something we've talked about a lot is until you understand how to like get that patter down with your artist it's hard to figure out exactly how many lines aren't going to get cut or what's not going to get letter smushed and if this keeps getting moved i wonder if the letters kept having to change and it just yeah you know what after your perspective on the dialogue didn't feel wholly unique i sometimes take for granted that like to me if a writer gets that wolverine should say gotta not going to but emma frost says going to not gotta i'm kind of like all right at least we're moving in the right direction i've had to read worse than this i read hi i'm Allie. hi i can do anything 
Yeah, I, so I really liked what she did in terms of establishing the relationship for Beast Emma Frost. I thought that was a great, when we talk about Beast loving to think of himself as the smartest person in the room, but then Emma comes in and his asshole puckers up and tightens. That played as a better progression off of the drowning in his own hubris beast of the previous 26 issues of X-Force than the temper tantrum at the table did in X-Force 27. My real big voices concern was in the scenes with Logan Domino Quentin part was where the voices really and and again like there's so many parts to a comic like so we take this stuff for granted but you know in terms of you know clever plotting and maintaining a pace and engaging the reader and making sure that the beats of your story naturally progress and have causation and you know that it relates to where the story had picked up from before and where it's going after and we haven't even gotten into unique individual voices that give each character agency and are true to their respective histories. Like there is so much just in, you know, that, yeah, for a writer who's really so like, this is the type of person that you would want to say, okay, she's got a lot of great ideas. She's had some experience, like an annual and oversized, one of those voices issues. Like those are the places to really let her test drive and get a feel for some stuff. Overall, I think there was more good than bad but yeah it took me out back to your last comment god we just talked last week about immortal x-men how refreshing it was to have a book where we didn't have to say like or think about i wonder if this would have been better if there weren't shipping delays problems other things and seven days later (laughs) that's part of our conversation again because i think the no 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 i'm a furry bastard boy i think that scene really benefited from emma sitting opposite him being like little boy what are you playing at like there was something that that percy issue needed that the shamas issue gave me like it wasn't that the percy moment wouldn't have been amazing on its own but like getting that sudden blast of man beast sucks right before reading that issue made his suckage so much better or worse i'm not sure but what worked for me on every fucking level of this annual was the art from the fact that this looked like motherfucking murder world to the fact that everybody on that x-force team looks so hot so cool i love this reinterpretation of the shape of emma frost's face like i love a very Kare andrews xenogenesis kind of rounder faced emma design as well this was i just thought the art was above and beyond the coloring was spectacular this was an art issue for me as well for sure the emma art particularly in her opening scene with beast as she tosses her jacket on his table and goes shoulderless the panel where she goes into diamond form was stunning it it really gave her this multifaceted you know this beautiful but sexy but playing the chess moves and intimidating all at once without having to read any of the words like just completely in the visual storytelling i thought the art was fantastic for characters facial expressions i actually really like beast design in the annual. I like that he has more of a power lifter body that looks like it fits with the kind of character they're going with. I didn't particularly mind the exaggerated gut when that was what Percy was going for to talk about Beast's hubris, but I think here it just works a little bit better. The design overall, it's going to be a 
weird thing to talk about, but so I watched King Kong versus Godzilla, and for some reason, whoever designed King Kong, I'm just gonna say it, gave him cum gutters, and it was very uncomfortable to think about that. And like, for some reason, King Kong had like the perfect triangle, and I don't know who needs to hear this, but that was not okay. <laughs> Yo, look, K-Kong just hitting the P90X. He's just doing what he's got to do to keep that slender monster kaiju body. And I think that's a hint to you, Mothra and Rodan. You guys see the unrealistic expectations they are setting for monster magazine cover models? Guys, it's time to keep up or make a movement. Again, it's in the face with this beast. It's in the way they did the hair and the beard. You know, think of the actor Radha It has this kind of older gamesman feel. It's it's got the he's got the bushy unkempt eyebrows he's got the scar the 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 two little lower lip fangs like there's a lot of detail put into the face to kind of give you this where he still has some of this like older white man privilege kind of behind his facial expressions despite the fact that he's a big blue furry power lifter and it contrasts so nicely to the soft smooth features on Emma the precision hair the sharp dagger eyebrows like there's this back and forth with the kind of slightly unkempt slightly off the scar on the face that that really makes a great contrast between the two in the way that they're drawn and now to say something that is maybe i know not like the most popular thing in the world but at least it's not technically problematic in defense of hypersaturated colors listen <laughs> i thought the colors on this fucking thing looked like epcot in 1996 this was so such a celebration of vibrancy, depth, and value in color hue. And I get that this much color, this much hypersaturation, this like foregoing of aesthetic into blind neon culture. It's driving from North Carolina into South Carolina, hitting south of the border. But there's something so excellent about what it provides in an action story like this. I don't think that this coloring is always the right move, but the vibrancy the neon, the sort of range of tone for what this story was trying to tell me. This is where it works. And this is where I like that sort of off the wall color panel. I agree with you, Nico. It all works for me. It feels very almost paint by numbers, but in like the most complimentary way I can say that. The background colors definitely were used to make the foreground and the characters pop more. Just going back and forth with all of the very muted green in the background for the Beast and Emma scenes made the blues and the yellows of Emma and Beast just more vibrant. And then we had these variating background scales as the characters got pulled into separate places. So, you know, you have Domino, whose color scale is on this kind of gray, light blue, black, but she, you know, goes into this very red space, allowing her to stand out. Whereas Logan, who's in his brown and orange fighting purple sentinels, gets those domino colors behind him quentin in the white room yeah everything is done to make the characters pop just a little more than usual because we weren't doing this standard okay we're all gonna mimic
mimic Marte Gracia feel, which there's nothing wrong with. And it did a huge service to the line's cohesiveness as a whole. But for a single one-shot annual to say that like we're going to play with some things or try or do some stuff, it felt more vibrant in a different way. And I think part of that has to do with the way we're playing X-Force. When X-Force began as a spinoff of New Mutants, it was the gritty book. You know, it was all testosterone, veins, and dicks, and boobs, and everybody looked like Clint Eastwood trying to focus on something through vertical blinds, and it was horrifying. It was not Domino hot-wiring a Sentinel to ride it out of a volcano like Big Hero 6. It didn't become sort of this joyous, colorful celebration until the first major writer on the title, Fabian Nicieza, left and turned it over to Jeff Loeb, who had a decidedly more high-energy approach, and you kept that more high-energy approach. Everything you just described about the gritty feel of X-Force when we first got it, I completely thought you were talking about the launch of the post Hawks Pox Dawn of X with Ben Percy. I didn't realize- That's exactly you... my point. Exactly. Oh my God. I was going to say, Percy's writing a Fabian Nicieza, and then Shamus comes in and has like a Jeff Loeb sort of, oh, not quite Milligan off the wall, but like John Francis Moore level of like Yeah, fun. that's what I was going to say. When are we going to get some Purple Era? Yeah, this is just like, it goes from like gritty grim dark to fun. And I like that it's fun. And that's what I enjoyed. This felt like it should have been against Arcade. This old man, I don't know what came before the right? arcade that would have been so perfect yeah this guy is like uh what what came before arcades what did people used to do before like score things on abacuses like this guy is just the old timey abacus gamesman <laughs> i really enjoyed this annual overall and i really hope we see more nadia shamas i really thought she hit something about the energy i like in an x book there was a team dynamic i enjoyed i'm always down for more of this main trio and more of emma versus beast and you know just to mention on the color palette for a second beast is in these heavy dark tones and he's beginning to represent like he almost looks faustian here with the glasses and the beard yes and he's in all of these dark heavy tones and he's become this powerful man he's decided to show off his muscle and emma then has actually become a bit more demure a bit more reserved she's showing her power through elegance class and still sexuality but less exposed skin she is in these composed whites and these very specific lines making very specific choices and they very clearly represent sort of Emma is a diamond. You can see through her. You know what she's trying to do. She's trying to save the mutants. Beast, this tangled mess of fur and darkness, you don't know what he's thinking. And there is really something to how beautifully and eloquently those played out against the natural tones of the green backgrounds. I very much agree with all of that. This is very much the case. Yeah, this first issue back, really, Ben Percy said, we're going to hit the ground running. Maybe he even realized that in trying to pace out for X lives and deaths, we all got a little antsy. And this issue was kind of nonstop. And just to stop on the art for this a second. This issue's a lot. No Kassara, though. Yeah, I was disappointed on that. Everything is better with Kassara, but he was just taxed on, you know, what well, we just got five issues of him in two months. So I 
understood. I think my biggest having to stop and laugh moment at the beginning of this, I'm glad that this got a little better. You know, there are times when Percy can be funny. I would like to think that he used the break to kind of reflect on the first 26 issues and, you know, some of the things that worked, some that didn't. You know, he's probably at his funniest when he's doing Forge's gym logs. The unintentional comedy of us getting an editor's box on page two saying, as detailed in the now classic X-Lives of Wolverine 1 through 5. That is a bold statement for something that just finished a few weeks ago. (laughs) Woo! And like this opening sequence, that's something that Ben Percy does so well in like a classic Vertigo way. What's this dark opening and what is it going to mean? Keep reading to find out. Like he really has the beat of an issue down because the juxtaposition of that early horror sequence of Logan and the Cerebro helmet and what in God's red name is this horrifying monster going to be? We get these bright pages, again, Beast and the Council, and I'm excited to see the narrative moving forward right away and again sage right away more sage the number one thing we all said all 26 issues all of x lives and x deaths more sage and here she is Yes, and I am, I'm so happy. I love her. I think that she makes a great internal antagonist frenemy for Beast. And I think ever since we got that moment where she had that flying knee to his neck to kill him, we've definitely been able to see her or want more of her as a checks and balance containment measure. Um, You know, not his secretary, but his equal there, even though he's supposed to be, as he mentioned a number of times in this, you know, the command or secretary or whatever that he's in charge of this stuff i love the positioning of her in this starting season two that opening scene very much felt like a pre-credit scene on like a sci-fi or cw show like exactly the unknown horror that you know they're gonna have to track down or fight over the next you know 42 minutes and then credits very buffy of them yes introduce the villain in the first three minutes and then we spend the entire issue slash episode learning about our villain fighting it once losing that fight finding its weakness and then defeating it by the end and back at their hangout spot to drink some milkshakes or i guess in this case going to the green lagoon i have never missed my words when it comes to how much i love sage and how much i think she deserves much more and much more credit for everything sage serves really well. She's kind of the straight man of the group, if that makes sense. When you have sitcom comedies, you have the straight man, and that person is typically not funny. They're kind of almost the punching bag for the jokes for these hyper-exaggerated characters that tend to be around them. And that's kind of who Sage is surrounded by, hyper-exaggerated characters with distinct personalities. Sage doesn't have the most dominating personality when it comes to how she's traditionally written, but I think she serves such a huge purpose for not only this the internal working of the Krakoa works, but also just for this book, where as you said, Josh, she works so well as this person pushing against Beast that goes against what he wants, because she understands that while Beast is doing things he needs to do, he's not always doing what's in the best interest of Krakoa. He's doing things for the best interest of Beast. And I really love that she said no more. She basically did like every teen movie the equivalent of like taking off the glasses and putting the hair down and they're like i've been beautiful the entire time she's like i had a voice the entire time and you're going to listen to me i'm going to make these great points about omega red and everyone was kind of like well yeah she's kind of right there's a dramatic slow clap everybody really believes in her now she gets the art scholarship the fact that magneto is in 
there? Did the artist, like, Magneto doesn't have any lines. Did they just not give Robert Gill the notes from Immortal 1 for this, or? I would love, maybe, if this is kind of like Hellfire Gala, and we come to realize, like, all of these issues, all of these number ones at this point are sort of taking place around the same time, maybe. Because, yeah. And, you know, the other thing, even if Magneto was like, I'm done with this, peace out, Cub Scouts, he'd still have, like, leftover issues to vote on. He'd come visit. He'd hang out on the set for the day. Maybe he'd do a voiceover. He could film a little cell phone clip. You know, I feel like there's ways I could make it work. But something we have talked about a lot lately is in an effort to push bigger and more exciting stories, it is once again falling on us to make a lot of things work. And that's a little frustrating because one of the things that I thought was so great about this issue was just how far into this idea we're already moving. I don't feel like we got a setup issue that's letting me know things in X-Force are gonna be crazy. I feel like I got a setup opening and then I immediately got the what's now. And that was exciting. I like being in now because that's where Percy does his best work when everything's on the line. This had some Matthew Rosenberg level pacing where Rosenberg has in the past started story arcs with so many beats and turns in like one issue that like, you know, Bendis would have spaced that shit out over two years and you're like, my God, that could have been the whole first arc and we just, whoo, like we hit all of those in and and it's six pages. (laughs) It's refreshing because, you know, while comics aren't as decompressed in their storytelling as they had been for a while, like it's, we still don't often see things do this much, but it's a little disappointing that the line took three months off. They took the entire first quarter of the year off from the main line and to, to line everything up and to start fresh and roll out a big coordinated season two or whatever, Destinies of X. And okay, so the annual that was supposed to come in the in-betweens wound up coming late and had to be squeezed at the beginning. But this was part of the, like, we shouldn't have to be doing, this should be like an immortal where we're like, man, it feels so good to not have to be wondering about editorial things on this. Like, I, I don't know, in my brain, that if we just had the only issue we got last week was a huge thing with the majority of the story revolved i mean i shouldn't say the majority your your like main action yeah because sinister was clearly the a your b story in there was magneto leaves and who's taking his place and you sit it with generation hope then the very next week when we have a big quiet council scene it should be hope sitting there my theory for this probably had to be that this was drawn before. I I don't know if if it's because there was just a little bit of a miscommunication on when this was supposed to be released and the information got crossed. I, because the according to Marvel in the back of these books, you're supposed to read Immortal X-Men number one first before you read the X-Force issues. So I don't really know how this was missed. Is it the biggest deal in the world? No, not really. You don't see them voting on anything thing and from the way the tone in the book is set you can kind of tell that sage's point is going to be made more so than beasts so i don't know if it really changed anything it's just more of a weird inconsistency that i'm surprised either wasn't caught or they decided that it just wasn't worth dealing with yes same same it did not take me out of the issue nearly as much as stopping to refer to x lives as now classic you know what kind of took me out of the issue um 
let's talk about Brand being like, can I touch your your scar? Like, as someone with a very pronounced medical surgical scar, I'm like, hmm, I don't know how I feel about this. It made me su- just like, she basically said, can I finger your furry socket? And that's what I didn't care for. This was supposed to be creepy and uncomfortable, right? Like, it's not unintentionally creepy and right? uncomfortable. It was su- It's intentionally creepy and uncomfortable, right? It's not right? romantic, right, though? That's not it's- supposed to be romantic that's not her like i love you and your scars that's her being like can i finger your socket right like that's what's happening i have only known the information recently that brand and beast were a thing at some point my only thing is that i see abigail brand has now been in so many issues and it is wonderful to see this character and things but there's just like a weird discomfort i have because it's just like she's working with orcas i like i have no idea how genuine she's being about anything she's saying or anything she wants to do because i know that she's a traitor right now so like i don't get it but i also think that two toxic people deserve one another so like you know what maybe maybe this is a great pairing and they could just go fuck in the bushes or something i don't know their couple name could be breast the fact the (laughs) fact The fact that two characters who have become the villains of their stories, but don't think of themselves as villains and don't realize that the other is a villain of an ongoing story are now awkwardly, creepily hugging on Mars is a fantastic, like, line-wide story beat. And there's something about the coloring and art here as well. She's green, he's blue, they're on a red planet, the next page is white, it transitions us into this dynamic yellow shift. There really is so much going on in this book at any given time, in the art as well. And even if I am a bit sad that we've lost Kassara, something Gil is providing on these issues that I maybe didn't feel he provided when he did his fill-ins earlier in the run is a lot more facial perspective. I recognize the characters well here, such that when Omega Red comes out, like, I would know that's Omega Red before the tentacles, you know, just when he's like um, like a puddle man. When he's sexy? Because sexy Omega Red was a choice was like I was not expecting. I mean, I know they did some modifications, but he we got looks like a hairless saber tooth. Yeah. We got sexy Omega Red, and that's I have multiple conflicting feelings about this. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's a thing. He appeared in this book. They for some reason like sexualized him. Like he looks good, but I don't think you're supposed to say that about Omega Red. And that's about it. I don't know what exactly Omega Red's going to do because I'm not familiar enough with the character to understand their motives or really understand what they would do with all the information given in this situation. However, me being Jonah and trying to understand might be where the story will go, I do think Omega Red won't necessarily be an ally, but I don't think he's going to go back to Russia. Well, and I mean, it helps that here he looks like Kazar, Doc Ock of the Savage Land. And beyond that, though, I have to wonder what that means about the thing that ate the top of Forge. So, like, in the background, there's this helmet monster, mm-hmm. and now it grows Omega Red tentacles. And I just sort of assumed it was Mikhail. But now I wonder where it got these tentacles from and did it eat Forge's brain because Forge knows mutant stuff, but didn't Forge get depowered in X-Deaths? So, huh? On the final page, the full page splash, where we see the Cerebro helmet with Omega Red tentacles, it also has Ultron eyes. 
Well, yes, it does. Yeah. Now I definitely, uh, now I definitely see that. Yeah. That's really interesting. It could just be a design choice, you know, but like that's a, it's definitely doesn't have to be ultra something. Yeah. But it could be. And I think that would be a cool unexpected, especially when we're talking about the meta narrative of the robots, artificial intelligence as the enemy Ultron and Omega Sentinel and Nimrod would be a motherfucker of a grouping. And I feel like there's enough leftover Ultrons just laying around the Marvel Universe, just kind of lying about, that Orcus could probably get their hands on one, reasonably speaking, or perhaps like Russian black market dealings, Mikhail got one. But I also like the potential threat of a Cerebro helmet. One of the things that has become a little more difficult in this era is coming up with consistent, believable villains. And you can't always be fighting humans that hate mutants. Yes, they will never run out of mutants hated by humans and humans hating on mutants. We won't run out, but we do need a variance to our stories and seeing something like an evil Cerebro helmet possessed by some bad guy that provides a new perspective, at least on the sort of cyclical storytelling we found ourselves in. Yeah, I think if we're talking about a season opener, this one, I like that they accelerated the pace. I like that they went, you know, bang, bang, bang through a bunch of story beats that we have, you know, um, what we have with Forge here, what we have with the, you know, Cerebro Helmet enemy, what we have with Omega Red, what we have with Beast and Brand, like it's taking, it's laying out a lot of our season two threads at once. And I want to say in a maybe more exciting way than when Percy really started this, Percy really started multiple threading when the Wolverine solo launched. And yeah, I think that like Omega Red in particular is one that the more I think about, I really like the idea. I think it's a kind of cool twist on what they did with Quentin Quire in terms of like Quentin being like, I want to be this better person and I want and I'm going to make all these modifications to make myself better and this and that. And Sage going like, no, like let's, let's do that for him as like our olive branch and i would love like to see a next issue like omega red going to the green lagoon and then it being like no like i'm not radioactive like people don't die from being near me yeah i'm hot i love that sage thought like let's make him hot so he can fuck and you know maybe he won't be so angry like <laughs> we can actually get some a human character development side of arcady that we've never really seen before i I think it's really fascinating because he's like a quintuple agent at this point. Like, I don't even think he knows where the fuck his loyalties lie. So give him something that makes him happy. Get his tiger back. Like, because we are in a position where we've at this point, we've invested, like we've put in the time, we've developed him, we've brought him to this new nation. And that is one of the reasons that whenever anybody's like, oh, Krakoa could still go away. I'm like, and I understand that you're saying it's been three or four years of production but you know it it probably at this point you'd be throwing away too many stories where you've given too many characters too much internal narrative too much internalism for you to just go back like that it would feel so inconsistent to what the x-men have become and we're looking at further developing omega red to a point where his character can be redeemed in a post x lives x deaths world that really says that we're trying to tell a different kind of X-Men and I'm here for that world where we're looking to move the narrative forward. 
Yeah, as we talk about this, I think this is one of the first points that I really heard people making a lot when it was like Krakoa has changed thing irrevocably is like a character like Black Tom, like a character like Black Tom, you can never sell to the audience again, like in a post Krakoa world as like robbing banks with Juggernaut and twirling his mustache. He's moved too far. Like he has found purpose and value. And like if Krakoa went away, he could be he could have have purpose and value in his life that doesn't require like he's the character has evolved in a way that you, you just can't reset him again like you had before and and he was the first one we really saw that way in x-force and now the list of characters that have gone that path is far too many and you know omega red i think might just be the next on the list it's wild to think of omega red getting redeemed because he'd never actually been deemed <laughs> <laughs> yeah hold on you bring up a very interesting point josh redeemed so does deem mean somebody has to fall from grace like you have, you have to do something bad to be deemed how do you how do you redeem somebody if the, you can't read something that's not real anyway you can spend so much time on a character and then have nothing to do with them but that just feels like a waste of time and a waste of resources why would you spend so much effort time characterization on a character that you don't want to utilize or aren't going to utilize for anything within the near future that just doesn't feel like it makes sense so i have a feeling we are going to see a lot more of omega red or at least have omega red play a larger role in something where we potentially do kind of get to see him as a good person because he was willing to be a good person he was on x-force and he was willing to try out for what that meant he literally went to go invade russia and that's where you know mikhail got him in the hot the steam room or something like that i don't really remember the issue but you bring up a great point. As long as there is still Mikhail, there's still a badder guy so that we can redeem Omega Red. It's just like, it's that thing is how many of Wolverine's bad guys can we mostly redeem? How many of them can we make mostly good guys? One of the things that'll come out of this that's terrific is room for a lot more new villains. But part of the problem is you've made these villains so powerful over the years that now if they do become good guys, the good guys are just way too OP. So, you know, keeping Mikhail a bad guy, that's the right move. I don't want to see him redeemed. He needs to stay a bad guy till he dies and then figures out a way to bring himself back again. I am firmly, the more I think about it i am absolutely convinced that within the next six months omega red is gonna fuck he's gonna get laid and i want to know who your choices are solemn yeah that's good yeah that's i think that's the one i think solemn gives him everything he needs i was gonna say deadpool but you know what deadpool is just funny solemn so it's the same so yeah i really like that yeah solemn is definitely the one who can give omega red the the good pain boy treatment he deserves so you know who I was thinking that likes a little evil and hasn't been used lately and would definitely want to take a test drive on the new hot Omega Red? Roulette. Ooh, you know, I like Roulette. I think she would. She's definitely someone who'd be into bad boys. If Solemn was part of this conversation, his response would be, why not both? But I love it. I'm here for it. A thousand percent. Omega Red on the Cohen dating game. A thousand percent. 